Hey there, Vernacular Faithful, Redcoat here. And Santa joins him. Today we're going to be talking about randomness in games, specifically how it is often used and how we can use it effectively to create an engaging experience for the player. So before we can talk about implementing randomness in any capacity, we first need to define what randomness is in general. So, Santir, if you would be so kind. Fundamentally, when we say something is random, we just mean that we can't predict exactly what it will be. In real life, this typically means that we lack the ability to account for all of the variables, or there's information hidden from us. If you had all of the variables, you could calculate the results. A shuffle deck is in some order, just an unknown one. A die roll would be calculable if we had all of the factors, such as starting angle, angular velocity, various frictions and table surface normals, and probably a number of other factors that I don't even know to think of, so it seems unpredictable to us. This lack of predictability is what randomness really is. It should also be mentioned that we can often discern what outcomes are possible, we just don't know for certain which outcomes will end up happening. So, with that definition of randomness, we can approach the usefulness of the concept overall when it comes to game design. See, when making a game, one has a great deal of systems that they have to implement to make the experience sufficiently logical as to allow the player to suspend their disbelief. This shows up in things like implementing gravity, such that what goes up must come down, or making cars accelerate to maximum speed rather than immediately reaching top velocity. Such considerations help the player control the game better by relating in-game behaviors to real-world examples, increasing the predictability of in-game actions and overall immersion in the game world. With this said, creating a world that maintains suspension of disbelief is an extremely challenging endeavor, because as soon as the player recognizes certain breaks in reality, such as wonky gravity or weird speed handling, the suspension of disbelief is lost. One of the more subtle reality breaks is the idea that the world presented to you is too predictable to be real. For instance, if the player notices that the same sound is playing over and over again whenever an explosion happens, or if the player realizes that all of the people they've encountered have been walking in the same circle for hours, their response will be either to accept that it's a game and move on, or to say, that's not how things work, possibly falling out of the immersed state in either situation depending on the overall presentation of the product. Producing the unpredictability that allows one to accept a reality as real through deterministic means is a nightmare, as most machines haven't even a modicum of the processing power to actually run all of the different overlapping systems required to simulate life on Earth or other extrapolated planes of existence. That's not even factoring in the sheer amount of time it would take to build every single aspect of Earth physics and their overlapping interactions in raw code. It would take literal lifetimes to conceive, implement, and bug test such an endeavor. Enter randomness. By implementing various forms of random selection and event propagation, we can simulate the naturally unpredictable nature of reality, thus helping support the player's suspension of disbelief. Now, whenever a sound plays, we can select from a series of different similar tones at random, making it not quite as obvious that the explosions aren't real. When moving people around the town, we can choose from sets of paths at random, making it seem like they have minds of their own. Now, this isn't to say that we fully fool the player into thinking the world is real. Rather, it is that we give them enough context to allow them to accept the world as it is presented to them, and to focus on what they came for, the gameplay. Randomness can also be very useful when it comes to gameplay. One big reason is for the creation of variance. When things are consistently the same, they become predictable, which can, though to be clear not always, can cause them to become boring. 
This is where randomness helps. An excellent example of this comes from card games. Because most card games use shuffled cards, you don't know which ones you'll get. This causes games to play out differently because you have different tools to work with. If you always knew what order you were going to draw your cards in, then the games would play out the same way every time and much of the strategy of the game would be lost, as deck building ceases to have anywhere near the depth. As you don't have to deck build for consistency, and you no longer have to figure out what the best way to sequence the cards you do have access to is. While it would probably be enjoyable for a little while, the lack of variance would quickly make the experience boring. There's another danger to predictability, which especially shows up with enemy AI. They become too easy. If you know what the AI is always going to do, it becomes extremely simple to make a counter strategy that always succeeds. This isn't to mean that it can't fail within the confines of the game rules, but that the AI never does anything to make it fail. You may want some of this to some extent, but in general, an enemy that's too predictable often ceases to be dangerous, and when an enemy is no longer dangerous, it easily becomes boring. Note that this is true when other factors make an enemy no longer dangerous. Predictability is one way that this can occur. Finally, randomness, or in this case unpredictability, which randomness can be used to help create, can help make more options possible in terms of what to do because it makes perfect play or perfect path no longer a thing. It also can introduce avenues for risk-taking. A good example of what I mean by this comes from Pokemon. There are a number of variants on this, but for this example I'm going to talk about Thunderbolt and Thunder. These are both powerful electric-type attacks, and they serve largely the same role. Thunderbolt has 100% accuracy and 90 base damage, whereas Thunder has 70% accuracy and 110 base damage. This means that Thunder deals more damage than Thunderbolt, but because it has a chance to miss, whereas Thunderbolt generally does not, it is a riskier move to use. Which one you want to use, therefore, depends upon whether or not you want more damage at the risk of sometimes dealing no damage, or if you want the reliable, but weaker, choice. There are other factors that go into the decision of which one you want to use, but the fact that randomness can be used here to inject an element of risk, the chance to miss with Thunder, makes that a choice at all, rather than always automatically using the most powerful attack. So now that we've talked a bit about what randomness can be used for in games, let's move on to the various ways in which randomness can be implemented. While there are many ways to build randomness into a game system, they can generally be grouped into two overarching forms, progressive and insular. So what is the difference between the two types of random? Well, progressive random is influenced by the results of previous events, while insular random is not. For instance, drawing a card from a deck is a form of progressive randomness. When you draw a card from your deck, you influence the next draw you make, because now that the card is in your hand, you cannot draw it again. Even if you have an additional copy of that card, you've affected your overall chances of getting that card on the next draw. An example of insular randomness would be a coin flip. In this case, if you get heads after flipping the coin, your chances of getting another heads or tails does not change because you got a heads the first time. The chance remains constant regardless of what results you received in the past. It should be noted that as humans, we tend to seek out patterns in everything we interact with, as we tend to want to figure out how to predict events so that we can react to them accordingly. This means that in general, we humans tend to try and understand seemingly random things by analyzing the results and making conclusions about the next ones that may appear. This idea only works when a random event's results work in some progressive manner. This means that when an event's results work insularly, and don't have any relationship to each other. It tends to be unintuitive to us, as even when we identify the fact that there is no pattern, we will expect a non-pattern pattern, where the results are consistently inconsistent. In other words, 
If we got the same answer over and over again, we would start to believe that there is a pattern, even though we have no reason to believe that the answer will be the same again without more systemic context. We are suspicious of anything that claims to be random, but appears to have a pattern, despite that being a perfectly valid occurrence when dealing with an insularly random set of events or results. This sort of psychological phenomenon of expecting a certain lack of a pattern to insular randomness has a big impact on how players perceive things in games. So, when we see something that looks like a pattern, we begin to suspect that it isn't really random. While it is a progressive random system, the Card Shuffler and Magic the Gathering Online is a very good example of this. Because it uses very good randomness algorithms, there is no guarantee of an even distribution of card types, notably resource cards and non-resource cards, lands and spells respectively. This fact causes a lot of players to complain that the Shuffler is broken because the distributions it creates don't match the idea that players have of what a random distribution is supposed to look like. This phenomenon even shows up in physical Magic the Gathering play, where people will think they didn't shuffle enough, or shuffle well enough, if they don't get that expected random distribution. Largely, this is because players expect their card draws to roughly match the ratio of card types in their deck, so that any given sample mirrors that ratio as closely as possible. For example, if you have 60% spells and 40% lands, then you expect any given 7-card hand to match that same ratio, so 4 spells and 3 lands, even though that's not actually how a random distribution works. The other part of the player's perception with regards to the results of a random event or systemically controlled set of random events is the level of impact those results have on the gameplay as a whole. Generally speaking, when a player's play is affected by results of a random event, they will have more of a vested interest in those results, causing them to try and figure out how that random event occurs. In other words, the player will be more inclined to seek out a pattern of results for an event or procedure if the results from that event or procedure affects them in some way. The player will also often try to find a way to influence the results. The superstition that holding down plus B makes you more likely to catch a Pokemon is an example of this. Conversely, if the effect on gameplay is small, or even non-existent, the player will have less of a reason to try and figure out if there is a pattern to the random results that appear. Both versions of player response can be seen in Pokemon with respect to two parts of how damage is calculated in those games. In Pokemon, damage is determined by a series of stats and damage values associated with their attacks. However, when a player makes an attack with a Pokemon, an additional set of calculations are imposed to increase the variety of the results that occur. Firstly, the attack can get a high roll or low roll value, or some value in between, which causes the attack to deal 85% to 100% of its calculated value. In general, Players are less concerned with the nitty-gritty of this calculation, as it often only minorly affects how many attacks it takes to defeat an individual Pokémon, raising or lowering the number by one, if at all. The second additional calculation is the critical hit, which determines whether the attack is calculated at its base value or if the base value is multiplied by 2, or 1.5 in recent games. More players are concerned about this part of the calculation, as it has a major effect on the number of attacks it takes to KO their opponent, often cutting the amount of attacks required to defeat an opponent in half when the critical hit happens. Most players, even on the high level, don't care about the high and low rolls for damage, as while this can affect the outcome of play, it is not nearly as big an effect as getting a critical hit, which is likely to knock out the target in many situations. One other important note on the difference between these two aspects of damage calculation and the player's reaction to them is the fact that critical hits are called out by the game with visual and audio cues that let the player know that they happened. 
Damage rolls have no real visual or audio cue directly associated with them, although the player can observe some visual indication of the effect in the form of how much the opposing Pokémon's life bar goes down. Because of this difference in visibility and impact, players are more inclined to feel cheated when they do or do not get a critical hit based on their previous results. Conversely, most players don't even notice when they get a high or low roll on their damage most of the time. Yeah, it's only in high-level play that you might hear someone say, come on, come on, high damage roll, but you'll hear players of all skill levels say, come on, come on, crit, just this once. Actually, on this topic of hoping to get lucky, one thing that can become very frustrating to players is when they feel like they should be getting lucky, but aren't. In contrast, of course, players can often feel cheated when they get unlucky. Pokemon critical and hit chances are a good example of this. Make enough attacks without getting a critical hit, and psychologically, you feel like you should be getting a critical hit any attack now, and the longer you go without getting one, the more you feel like the game owes you a critical hit, even though every attack has the same chance of being a critical hit as the one before. In contrast, players can feel very unlucky when their 95% accurate move misses. This is roughly the inverse probability of a critical hit, but because we always want the outcome we perceive to be positive, we don't think of the probability the same way. We think that we should always hit, rather than thinking we are owed a miss. One of the other aspects of the composite experience that is affected by using either an insular or progressive version of randomness is the suspension of disbelief. Generally speaking, context will determine how believable either version is. For instance, if the randomness was being used to represent the difficulty of picking a lock, the player would have the expectation that every time they attempt to pick the same lock, that lock should become easier to pick. In this case, a progressive approach to random would be more conducive to maintaining the suspension of disbelief, increasing the percentage chance to beat the lock by some amount with each subsequent attempt. In contrast to this would be a set of simulated dice rolls where the player has no real reason to expect a pattern of results, and therefore would be more willing to believe it when their chance of winning doesn't accrue or decay over time. In general, progressive style randomness is more believable. This said, Progressive randomness is also a lot more intensive to make than insular randomness, as the added complication of shifting chances of successes and failures add another layer of complexity to the code needed to produce the desired type of random that the developer seeks. This brings us to the broader concept of implementing progressive and insular randomness. For sure, insular randomness is far simpler to implement, as it's just a simple call to a random number generator, or RNG for short, because people love acronyms. Progressive randomness isn't so simple to set up, for one thing, you have to consider how you're doing it. There are a couple of different ways this can be done. Use a bag of results. When you want a new result, you draw one from that bag and then put all of the results back into the bag when it is empty. This can also be conceptualized as a deck of cards where you draw a card off the top of the deck and then once all of the cards are drawn, you shuffle them back in. This method is a way of setting things up to guarantee every possible result is hit, but can lead to streaks depending upon the number of possible outcomes. You can keep a history of results and throw out results that are on that history. This can be especially useful if you want to prevent or reduce streakiness, which is where you get the same outcome over and over. Of course, you have to figure out how big of a history to keep, and each history you make costs memory. While one history may not consume all that much, they can quickly add up if you need a lot of them. Another way is with an adjusting chance. Use a coin flip as an example. You start with a 50% chance to get heads. If heads is flipped, you can adjust it to a 40% chance to flip heads. You keep doing this until tails is flipped, which will always occur once the chance for heads hits 0%. At that point, you can reset the results. You could also potentially increment the results to try and set up a counter streak. Maybe you increase the chance for tails by 20% rather than resetting the chance to 50%. So say if you didn't flip tails until you had an 80% chance to do so, then your next chance for heads would be 40%.
You can, of course, do some combination of these techniques. All of these techniques obviously require keeping track of previous results in some way. Therefore, they all come with a certain amount of memory overhead. One other important thing to keep in mind is the scope of those previous results. You could implement one of these into your game-wide RNG, but doing that will likely obfuscate its impact. Remember why it is you're seeking to implement a progressive RNG system. It's to make random results line up with the audience's expectation of patternlessness. In order to do this, you need to make sure that each object, or objects that the player logically groups together, has its own progressive RNG system. Otherwise, you'll likely lose the benefit of such a system. As an example, if you implement the adjusting chance system for a coin flip that I mentioned previously, you'd want to apply the chance adjustment independently to each coin. This is because the results of one coin shouldn't impact another coin's results. This sounds obvious when said this way, but it's really easy to miss when you have your head in code and aren't thinking about the greater implications of what you're making. So when you're making a progressive system, it is important to recognize these sorts of boundaries and implement things accordingly. On the subject of matching the audience's expectations when it comes to random results, one thing to consider is the sample size when it comes to the results that are presented to the player. The reason this is important is because of the cumulative nature of percentages. Generally speaking, when one uses percentages to measure results, they are comparing multiple results to each other and coming up with rankings of how common certain results are. For instance, if someone flips a coin five times and gets three heads and then two tails, one could say that heads appear 60% of the time and tails appears 40% of the time. This result, however, doesn't necessarily represent the actual percentage chance of getting either a heads or a tails, which is 50-50. In this case, the user who flipped the coin, knowing the chances, might be a little surprised, but would still accept the outcomes. If we chose to increase the amount of times we flipped the coin, we would gain more chances to get heads or tails with each additional flip skewing our results closer or farther from the initial percentage chance with each flip. In general, increasing the amount of times that the random choice, in this case of coin flip, is made will make it more likely that the results will match the actual percentage chance. This is called increasing the sample size. It should be noted that while this does not guarantee that the results will always behave in the exact same manner, an increased sample size of results can lead to an overall more stable and subsequently believable set of results. What is interesting about this fact is that it can actually be non-obvious. For example, to many people, rolling 100 dice seems more random than rolling only one or two dice. However, because of the way standard distributions work, basically the sample size concept Redcoat was just talking about, rolling 100 dice will produce a more consistent result than rolling only one or two dice would. Remember that the perception of randomness is very important to how players perceive things in your game. Perception actually matters a lot, and one area where this is really noticeable is with the results that your randomness produces. Let's go back to the Well of Pokemon attacks and their accuracy stat. Because the result is binary, you either hit or you don't, the way the player interacts with that randomness becomes focused on the outcome. In other words, the chance to miss scales more rapidly in player perception than in mathematical reality because the penalty for missing is so harsh. One miss can be the difference between victory or defeat. This makes any accuracy below 100% a risk, with a move having even 70% accuracy being seen as very risky. Consider that it misses slightly less than one-third of the time, but that every time it misses, you are put at a significant disadvantage. Often, the risk isn't worth it. This sort of thing appears in a great deal of RPGs and tactics games when it comes to the concept of mischance. In tactics games like Fire Emblem and XCOM, the mischance percentage represents factors that are out of the player's control 
and how well the player's current selected unit or units are able to compensate for those factors. The idea is sound in theory, but due to the fact that it is a hit or miss situation, and in these games one miss can mean the death of a unit and be a huge setback for the completion of the game as a whole, any negative outcome can feel unfair to the player. Even though the percentage chance is technically fair, as it is in reference to your overall attacks over the course of the battle, rather than in any given man-to-man -man situation, missing on a 90% is just as bad as missing on a 50% when it comes to the result of the attack. So even though the statistics suggest that the player should expect to get a miss every now and again, those misses tend to be so punishing that the player will only accept results more in line with a 100% hit chance, rather than the more likely outcomes associated with any other percentage chance to hit. Compare this to card games, where you have to figure out how to deal with what you're dealt. In these scenarios, there are a couple of things going for you. For one, you might have a range of acceptable outcomes. For example, maybe in a game of Magic the Gathering, you have a few specific cards that you need to draw to deal with some threat your opponent has. However, you may have many more cards that you can use to extend how much time you have to draw the card you need. Drawing one of those cards doesn't help you actually deal with the situation you need to deal with, but it doesn't hurt you either. Furthermore, with card games, the randomness is often dispensed in a way that you can try to do something with it. Even if you draw an unhelpful card, it is very likely that you can attempt a bluff to cause your opponent to think that what you drew is actually useful. This aspect allows you to mitigate the negative effects of a bad draw, and is only possible because the randomness occurs in such a way that the player is given a chance to do something about it. The core issue in the cases that we've discussed, and the case that manages to avoid having the issue, is the concept of result gradation. The term result gradation refers to the idea of a random event that can have multiple results that differ from each other. In most cases, the results range from poor to good to excellent, with various additional results in between the three benchmarks. This allows the results effect to more accurately reflect the results chance of manifesting, making things feel a bit more fair. An example of this concept would be making a slight alteration to how mischance interacts with damage in a game like Fire Emblem. Normally, the result is an all-or-nothing sort of dichotomy, regardless of what the hit chance is. However, if the result was changed such that the damage was lowered by some amount, depending on how badly the attack missed, the overall punishing feeling of missing would be reduced. Because of this, the player would be more incentivized to attempt more risky attacks, as they have much less chance of doing nothing at all, and are more likely to have a productive outcome. That wraps up what we have to say about randomness itself, but we'd be remiss if we didn't also talk about the interaction between randomness and skill. In general, randomness is perceived as decreasing the impact of skill. Compare shoots and ladders, or snakes and ladders depending upon where you live, and chess. In shoots and ladders, the player makes no decisions, but rather only rolls dice. The winner of the game is therefore entirely randomly selected through a series of dice rolls. Chess, on the other hand, has almost exactly zero randomness, with a possible exception for determining who gets to go first. Shoots and Ladders is not considered a skillful game, while chess is considered very skillful. In between these two extreme examples, however, are many games with some amount of randomness. There's a certain point where randomness does degrade the impact of skill. However, it should not be ignored that there is a skill involved in handling randomness. For example, if you know that you need a certain random result in order to win, playing as though you expect that result to occur. There's also the mental game of withstanding bad luck. Players who want to get better at games that do have a luck element would do well to determine what elements of both their losses and their victories are a result of luck and which are a result of skill. 
It is very important to not disregard a loss as simply getting unlucky, nor claim that a win was achieved entirely due to skill. Acknowledging your part and seeking to improve it is very important. In this way, skilled players will achieve a level of consistency. They'll still lose, of course, and some of those losses will be to bad luck, but they'll win a lot more than the average player does. One of the other things that randomness does in the skill-intensive environment is that it can inject some incitement into an otherwise predictable situation. If used properly, random events can change the narrative of a fight from something to which everyone already knew the outcome to something where no one truly knows how it will turn out. It can make for a very exciting spectacle when it comes to the audience's point of view and can keep the players on their toes as they become aware of the situations as they arise. The obvious example of this would be games like Mario Kart or Super Smash Bros., when items are on and hazards are allowed. In these scenarios, skill still plays a big factor, but random events and items change the situation and force the players to adapt. In many scenarios, it can grant those with less skill a chance at victory, which can keep them playing long enough to catch up to the other more skilled players. This isn't to say that random is the answer to all scenarios, as granting abnormally unfair advantages or essentially winning the game for the player cheapens the experience for both the winner and the loser of the exchange when it comes to skill-based environments. A big part of the enjoyment comes from the act of self-improvement and the overall flowering of skill. It is important to balance the concept of situational awareness and adaptability with raw executional skill and tactics in games of skill. And while at times it will be the lucky punch that wins the day, the sign of a master player shows in their consistency. This consistency is evidenced in how well they roll with changing scenarios and apply their skills and talents to pull out a win, no matter the situation. In the end, their win-to-loss ratio will show where their skills really lie. And that brings this podcast on randomness to a close. Join us next time when I interview Redcoat about fantastical racing games. Until then, this is CNTR, signing off. And this is Redcoat, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.